Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, here we are in week six of our series, Greater. We will finish it up next week, uh, final week in the series next week. And so today we're going to be looking um, at one of the most well-known Old Testament figures uh, probably ever. And that's what this series is all about. We're looking at key Old Testament people uh, from the first half of the Bible and looking at what made them great, why they're memorable, why we still talk about them and read about them and study their lives thousands of years later, and then we look at how similar in many ways they are to Jesus who came after them, look at how their lives really pointed to him and his life, and yet how it was pointing to him being greater, a greater version really uh, of each of these people. And again, this week's going to be a pretty famous person. We know a lot about this person, and there's a lot of great parallels, especially this holiday time of year about this person. Today, we're going to be looking at David, King David. Now, this is a guy you probably know a lot about. There are legendary stories, you know, David and Goliath. This is the same David. Uh, there, there are things that we know about him that we'll talk about today that really, you know, sort of encapsulate this person as much as we can encapsulate a person's life into a few minutes. We're going to attempt sort of to do that. But he was a man that had a fascinating life, and he was a very key figure for the Jewish people. You, you, you kind of know that you're a big deal when your name is in the flag of the country, you know, the Star of David, the, the Israeli flag. Uh, you know you're a pretty big deal when you are in the name of your country's flag. And so, uh, obviously, King David, big deal, important guy. And a lot of parallels to Jesus. And yet even as great as David was, as many great things as he did, Jesus is even greater. And so what we're going to do is look at really four things about David. We're going to look at two aspects of his rule as king of Israel. uh, And then two key personal aspects about the the man, David. And they kind of coincide. They kind of mesh together. They kind of blend together. But we're going to look at these four things and then see how each of these parallels to Jesus, but yet Jesus is indeed even greater than David. So the first two things that we'll look at deal with sort of the, the king, the, the rule, the reign of David. And the first key thing about David as king that we see here that we're going to focus on today is that David was a great king who replaced a bad king. David was a great king who replaced a bad king. So David was not the first king of Israel. He is the greatest human king of Israel, but not the first. So Saul came before David, but yet Saul wasn't a great king. In fact, when Israel, before they had a king, we've been looking at that storyline the last couple of weeks in that time period before kings, they're looking around at other nations around them that have kings, 
you know, strong men, warriors in battle, uh, good leaders, and they're saying, we want one of those. And God's saying, no, you don't, you know. Uh, and let me ask you, have you ever had buyer's remorse before? Maybe it's too easy on Amazon, click, 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 buy, 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 cart, 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 ship, 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 you know, and then you have all this stuff, you're like, oh, what have I done? You know, it's really easy right now with the internet to get instant buyer's remorse. I wish I hadn't have done that. I wasted my money. It was a bad purchase. Well, Israel discovers buyer's remorse pretty quickly because God tries to tell them, you do not want what you think you want. And maybe you've been there before whether literally, physically, or spiritually. You think you want something, you pray for something, you ask God for something, and he's like, you really don't need that. You really don't know what you're asking for. But what God does is he gives them what they ask for, even though he warns them, you're not going to like this. It's going to be bad for you. And so they pick Saul as their king, young, strapping, strong, handsome guy, Saul, but very quickly, they discover, oh, God was, God was right here. This guy's not so great anymore. Because instantly and then consistently, Saul continually disobeys God's commands. In one form or another, in one way or another, he just does whatever he wants. Despite what God's instructions were, he bends the rules really too far too many times. You know, it's kind of like the tab of a, of a can aluminum can. You bend it too many times and it's going to pop off. It doesn't make that sound, but you get the idea. So Saul kind of does this. He bends the rules too many times and he never takes responsibility for his sin. He points the finger. He passes the blame. And so finally God has enough and he says, Saul, you're done. It's over. My blessing on your life is gone. My blessing over your reign as king is over. And he says, I'm going to choose somebody else to replace you. Your son will not replace you. I'm done with your entire line. You've messed this whole thing up. And so then eventually, you know, David is chosen. God chooses this at the time. David is a scrawny teenage shepherd boy. But God chose him to replace Saul and replace him he did. Now, he wasn't perfect, as we'll talk about, but... Quite an upgrade from the first king of Israel, uh, the respect that he had, the favor that he had, the blessing of God that he had. Um, you know, he expanded the kingdom to heights it had never seen. It was the height of its power under King David's leadership. And so David is a great king who replaced a pretty crummy king in Saul. The second thing that we'll focus on just for a minute is something that actually didn't even happen. But we're going to focus on it anyway. So the second thing we're going to look at as far as David's rule as king is that he desired to build God's temple. He desired to build God's temple. Now that word desire is important because he, he did not build God's temple. He was not chosen. God did not give him the green light to build him a temple. But the reason I want to focus on it is because it does bring a parallel to Jesus that's going to be very important here in just a couple of minutes. And that desire is important, but really what I want to focus on is God's response to David's desire. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, David tells Nathan, the, the national prophet, one of his close friends, about this desire to build a temple, a house for God. And, uh, you know, Nathan's like, okay, sounds great, you know, go for it. But then that night, 
God speaks to Nathan and says, hey, I've got a message for David. I need you to tell him. And here's part of what God says to Nathan that he's going to tell David about this desire to build the temple. So it's 2 Samuel 7, verse 5. Here's the first thing that God says. He says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? So God's first response here is, did I ask for a house, Dave? Did I, have I been complaining about being homeless lately, David? Have I been whining? Is that why you're wanting to do this? Or do you have other ulterior motives to make this more about you? Like, hey, I haven't asked for a house. I haven't needed a house. I don't, I don't want it right now. You're not going to be the one to do that. And so God kind of says, hey, I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but I don't need it right now, and you're not the one to do that. Kind of harsh, but God just says, nope, don't do it. Don't do it. And then he goes on, and here's, here's the cool part about God's response. Is he says, I'm actually going to flip the tables on your desire. Instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. So we skip down to verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, and God continues. And what he says here is, is amazing. It's incredible what God says to David. He says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the reason I want to focus on this event that doesn't even happen is because of God's response to David's desire. So God really here establishes his covenant with David. He makes him this promise. He says, hey, you want to build a house for me, but I'm going to build your house. You want to build a legacy for me, but I'm going to build your legacy. And so he promises, first of all, your son will succeed you, which is the first time in the history of Israel that's going to happen because Saul's son didn't succeed him. So he makes this promise, your line's going to continue. Your son, he'll be the one to build my house when the time is right. He'll be the one to make that happen. He'll fulfill your desires. And then he says that his son and his son and his son, their ancestors will continue on your line. Your house will never cease. Your reign will never cease. The house of David will rule Israel forever. He establishes this covenant, this never-ending kingdom. It will last forever. That's a big promise. It's a big promise. It solidifies David's greatness here is what's going on, and it makes a key connection that we'll talk about here in just a couple of minutes. So David's desire to build God's house is super important, and really what makes David great. It solidifies the covenant between God and David. Now let's get into two more personal aspects of David the man, and this is one that we know very well and probably one that David wishes we didn't know as well. But the third thing, the third key about David is that he was sinful and imperfect. 
David was sinful and imperfect. Again, this is a thing that we probably know pretty well. And David, you know, his sin is open. It's in the record books. It's there forever. And he probably maybe in a, in a way wishes that weren't true. But in the end, he's just open about even his flaws. And you might think, okay, well, sinful and imperfect, big deal. Everybody's sinful and imperfect. So, and that doesn't make David great. True. But not only was David just sinful, like we're sinful, I mean, his sin was epic, right? I mean, his sin, his big sin that he's known for, kind of a big two-for-one here, is that he had an affair with one of his best friend's wives while his friend is off fighting wars for him. And in this little fling that they have, she becomes pregnant which is a problem because her husband is off fighting a war. And so David tries to cover up this sin. He tries to cover his tracks. He tries to make everything balance out. But his plan doesn't work. His plan fails. And so then he has no choice in his mind but to have his friend killed in battle, to have him get in the hottest part of the battle, have the other men pull back, and have one of his best friends killed to cover up his sin. Then he takes in his next-door neighbor's wife, his friend's wife, and then when she has a baby a few months later, no one's the wiser until God discovers he's known all along, and he exposes David's crazy sins, adultery and a murder cover-up. It's like 2020 here, okay? Not the year, but the show. It's like Dateline NBC, BC. David is just not a good guy here. Sinful, 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 wicked, in fact, in what he does in this specific instance. And he sins in other places too, but this is the thing that he's known for. However, the fourth thing I want to focus on to piggyback off of that is the fact that God was still known as a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. God actually uses this phrase about David when he's rejecting Saul as king. When he's saying, Saul, you're done, he says, hey, I've chosen another person, a man after my own heart, who will be the next king. He's talking about David. The same David, sinful David, yep. Even after his sin, yes. Even after adultery, yes. Even after murder, yes. He's still known as a man after God's own heart. We know this to be true because in Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament, Paul is preaching and he mentions David here and he uses the same term, a man after God's own heart. That is really David's great and his greatness, his legacy is that he was a man after God's own heart. Yes, this sinful, imperfect adulterer and murderer, God still used him despite his fallenness despite his sin, despite his imperfection, and God still saw him as a man after his own heart. Now, how could God do that? How could God still see David in that way? Well, it comes down to really the key difference between Saul and David. Why was Saul rejected really for lesser sins and David not rejected for worse sins? It's because what made them different was Saul never repented of his sin, yet David eventually did. Saul never took responsibility for his own sin, but David eventually did. 
They, both of them were exposed as sinners, but their response is what separated them. Their response is why Saul was rejected by God, yet David, through his sin, was still seen as a man after God's own heart, the greatest king in Israel's history. It's that one idea of repentance, of admitting sin, of admitting fault, of coming clean before God in their sin, or in Saul's case, in not doing that. I hope that's encouraging for you that despite your sin, despite your imperfection, despite your hang-ups, despite your issues, despite those things that you just can't seem to get a hold of, you can't seem to control, you, you fall into the sin traps all the time and you know that you're imperfect and you know that you're flawed, God can still use you. God still has a plan for your life despite your past Despite what presently you may struggle with, despite your imperfection and your sin, God still has a great plan for your life. Your sin does not disqualify you from God if your sin is followed up with repentance. That's what God's looking for. That's what it means to be after his own heart, is that, yes, I'm imperfect, but my greater desire is to know God better, to love Him better, to serve Him better. And I know that I'm frail. I know that I'm flawed. I know that I need His grace. I know that I'm in need of mercy. I know that I'm in need of forgiveness, and I admit that. I I openly admit that. And so that's what God's looking for. Not perfection, but this heart that goes after Him that says, I want to be more like Him. Be encouraged today. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done that you should have done, God still has a great plan for your life as your heart goes after Him and all that you do. So then let's make this connection here, and we'll talk about Jesus for a few minutes. This connection with David, we see a key connection, and I want to read a scripture that really encapsulates the connection between David and Jesus in a classic a uh, passage from Isaiah 9 that we read a lot this time of year. So this is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and here's what this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, so a few hundred years after David and a few hundred years before Jesus, Isaiah is right in the middle of them, and he gives this uh, prediction, this prophecy about one who will come after David. It says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule, look at this, he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So, this prophecy includes that line in there on purpose, intentionally. It reminds us, so when it says, He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of His ancestor David for all eternity, it's hearkening back to God's agreement, his covenant with David. Your line will continue forever. Your rule will continue forever. Even hundreds of years later, Isaiah says this promise is still in full effect. David's line will continue on and on and on forever. But it didn't look like what many thought it might. 
The kingdom split eventually, and David's throne or David's uh, ancestors still rule part of Israel that is broken. And but then once they're out of power, once Babylon comes and Assyria comes and everything's out of control, and they don't really have their own king anymore in the same way. It's like, well, did God did God fail? Did His plan fail? Did His word fail? No, because the one that Isaiah is talking about is an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, one who would rule in the line of David, but in a different way. So if you remember last week, we looked at the story of Boaz and Ruth, and we saw this connection that Boaz, his great-grandson, is King David. And then we saw in Matthew chapter 1 that through the line of David, generations later, comes Jesus. So Jesus fulfills uh, this prophecy or this promise from God in 2 Samuel and fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 9 that he would come through the line of David. So let's look at the similarities now between David and Jesus and yet see every step of the way how in each comparison Jesus is greater. So the first thing we looked at with David is that he was a great king who replaced a bad king. Absolutely true. But Jesus is a greater king who replaces the worst king. So Jesus is greater than David. So David replaced Saul. A great king replaced a pretty terrible king. Jesus is greater. So you remember when we talked about Israel choosing their first king, Saul, God said, nope, you don't want to do that. You don't know what you're asking for. Well, one of the things that God tried to, te- he tried to tell them was, I'm your king. I'm perfect, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm omnipotent, I'm all omnipresent, like I know the, the beginning from the end. Why don't you trust me to lead you like I have been? It was a theocracy. It, God was in charge. God was their king, their only king. And yet they chose an earthly king to sort of replace him or kind of as a go-between. And God said, you're not going to like that. So what Jesus does, the reason that Jesus is greater is that He being the king now puts God in his rightful place as the king. So Jesus is not even just a king or not just a great king, but he, as the scripture calls him, he is king of kings. So God is now back in his rightful place as king of Israel and really king of the universe because Jesus takes that place that belonged to him all along. So even David couldn't do that of what Jesus did. But we said that he replaces the worst king. So who's worse than Saul? Who's a king that's worse than Saul? Who does Jesus replace as king? Well, he replaces me. He replaces you. We are the worst types of kings or queens uh, imaginable. We are little tyrants of our own personal kingdoms. We are out of control. We are not fit to be in that place of honor, yet we put ourselves there. We crown ourselves. I'm in charge of my life. I can do what I want. I can make my decisions. I don't need God telling me what to do. That's what we do without faith in Jesus, without a relationship with Jesus. We put ourselves as our own little king, our own little queen. We're little out-of-control tyrants. But Jesus has come to replace us. Jesus came to replace me as the king of my life. And so what I have to do is take the crown off my head, submit it 
submit to him, give it to him, and let him rule my life. Let him reign in my life. Let him decide what I'm going to do and how I'm going to live and all those types of things in my life. Jesus is the greatest king, the king of all kings, who replaces the worst king. And that's me, and I'm sorry to say that's, that's you. But if we take the crown off and submit to him, we'll find that what we couldn't do, Jesus does. The chaos in our life, he brings order. Uh, the sadness in our life, he brings joy. Uh, the, the missing part of our soul that we need, he brings peace into that. And he completes our lives perfectly when he becomes king instead of us. So then the second thing that we saw about David was his desire to build God's temple. And we saw God's response to that was, instead, I'm going to build a house for you, this lineage for you. And we see this fulfilled in Jesus, and what makes him greater is that Jesus himself is the temple. Jesus is the temple. David desired to build God's temple, but Jesus comes to be the temple. So we talked about this last week, this account. We read it in John 2 here where Jesus goes to the temple one day and there are money changers there and they're gouging prices of animals for sacrifice and exchange rates are skyrocketing and Jesus says, nuh-uh, not happening here. He turns over the money changers' tables. He whips the animals out of the temple. He says, this is not going to happen. This is my father's house. It's a house of prayer. And so he, he kind of creates a scene here. He gets the attention of some of the religious leaders who are there at the temple, some of the key powerful religious figures, and they have a problem, and they have some questions for Jesus. So here in John chapter 2, verse 18, they say this to Jesus, the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, John tells us, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So when they're here in this temple, we talked about David desired to build the temple, but his son Solomon actually had the temple built. Now, the temple that Jesus is in right now, in this story in John 2, is not Solomon's temple. That was destroyed in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed and burned Jerusalem to the ground. So years afterward, a second temple was built, and it wasn't quite as elaborate. It was pretty simple. But Herod, King Herod the Great, uh, he redid the temple. He expanded the temple. He kind of gold-plated everything and made it super nice, super luxurious, and just magnificent to behold. So that's where they are in this setting. But Jesus is clearly not talking about tearing down this temple. He's not saying bomb in an airport. Okay, that's, He's not making a threat here. He's saying... I can do even better than that. He's clearly, it's a figure of speech. It's an analogy that he's making. And John remembers this when he's writing his gospel about Jesus. He says, yeah, Jesus said he was going to do this. He's talking about his death and predicting his resurrection from the dead. You can destroy this temple, and in three days, like, like the Terminator, 
I'll be back, okay? So John says, I remember him saying that, and then that happened, and it just verified everything Jesus said. He was and is the temple, and that's exactly what happened. So Jesus is on the cross later in the Gospels, and people remember what he said. You were going to destroy the temple? You can't even save yourself. (laughs) Ha ha, they make fun of him. They still didn't get the message. Jesus was the temple he was talking about. And so on the cross, the temple is being destroyed. But three days later, on the first ever Easter Sunday, Jesus rose. The temple was rebuilt. This prediction came true. This, uh, you know, pr- this thing, this prophecy, if you will, came true. So the key to the temple is that it was the house, really, of God. That's what David's desire was. I want to build God a house for his glory to dwell in. And that's eventually what the temple became. That's where God's glory dwelt on earth. But Jesus is greater because he is the temple. He is God dwelling on earth. That's what makes Jesus greater than David's desire to build this temple. Even when it was built the next generation later, Jesus is greater than that because he is the temple. He is God dwelling on the earth. So now let's look at the two personal aspects of David's life here. And we talked about that he was sinful and imperfect. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Jesus, however, is greater than David because he was sinless and perfect. David was sinful and imperfect. Jesus was sinless and perfect. So David's sins are well known and well chronicled. Jesus' sinlessness is also well chronicled. Let's look here at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Peter writes this about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, if anyone knows the character of Jesus, it's going to be Peter. He's with him every single day for three and a half years. Day in, day out, night in, night out. Every kind of situation you can imagine, personal moments, public moments, intimate moments, you know, Peter's there for all of it. Now, if you're with somebody every moment of every day for three and a half years, you're going to get to know them really well. You're going to know the little things about them and the big things about them. You're going to know their quirks. You're going to know their flaws. You're going to know their imperfections. So if anyone would know, you know what, guys, this claim about Jesus' sinlessness, not true. I wrote in my journal, Jesus did this on this day. He said this on this day. He committed this sin on this day. He broke this law on this day. Peter would have known if Jesus had sinned, at least for that period of time. Yet he writes, no sin, no deceit in his mouth. He didn't, he didn't sin in word or in deed. That's amazing. And that's a claim that Peter would have known firsthand. And you might think, well, okay, that's cool. That's impressive. But if Jesus was God, he's cheating the system. Of course, he's not going to sin. However, we read in Hebrews, so look at Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus played fair. He didn't cheat the system. He was fully God, yes, but also fully human. 
He's got these two dual natures in one person here. So he, the temptation he faced was real. He was really tempted to sin on a regular basis. Hebrews says in every way, just like we are, little things, big things, public things, private things, things maybe he could have sinned and hidden, things that would have been out in the open that would have ruined his ministry, ruined his life, but he didn't commit any sin. Think about that. That's amazing. Committed no sin. And you might think, okay, that's, that's great. That's impressive. That's cool. I wish I could do that. But why make a big deal about it? What's the importance of the sinlessness of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what's a big deal, and that is he had to be sinless. Let's look at one more scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Sin must be atoned for, right? There's a penalty for our sin. There's a price that must be paid. And God says that the price is blood. We've committed an offense against God. Our life is required. Our blood is required. And in the Old Testament, in order for people to not kill themselves, right, to make a a way to pay for sin, God established this sacrificial system where an animal would take the place of humans in shedding of the blood for the forgiveness of sin. But these animals had to be perfect. They had to be spotless. They couldn't be weaklings. They couldn't be runts. They couldn't have blemishes. They couldn't have defects. They had to be perfect. So Jesus, in order to be Uh, The sacrifice for sin had to be perfect, blameless, not physically, not not like a no defects physically, but in his nature, in his sin nature, he had to be blameless and perfect. His sinlessness is impressive, but it's also important. He had to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So let me say this statement. Maybe it'll shock you, but it's absolutely true. If Jesus were not sinless, then his sacrifice is not enough. That is a key requirement for Jesus being the sacrifice for sin. He had to be sinless. If he had sinned, his sacrifice wouldn't mean anything. I mean, think about it. Could I sacrifice myself to save you from your sins? No. Now, I could die for your sins, but it wouldn't mean anything. It would be, it'd be nice, it, it would be a, a noble thing to do, but it wouldn't matter because I am not sinless. I am sinful. And so me dying for your sins doesn't mean anything. Jesus had to be sinless. He had to meet that requirement. He had to fit that description for his death to be meaningful. And thankfully, he did meet that requirement. He did fit that description by being sinless and perfect in order to be our sacrifice, in order to take our place on our cross for our sin. And that leads to the fourth and final connection uh, with David and with Jesus, and that is David was a man after God's own heart, but the reason that Jesus is greater than David is because Jesus is God after man's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus is God after man's own heart. That's what makes this time of year so 
powerful. That's the beauty of the Christmas season, is it's the beginning of this rescue mission, that we were lost in our sin, separated from God, far from God, with no hope, in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness, and Christmas kick-started that plan into full gear. So it's not that we sin and God says, oh boy, what happened? Oh man, uh, something went wrong here. No, it's not that we sin and God looks at us and says, well, yep, too bad. Going to hell. Nothing to see here. Nothing you can do about it. And it's not what he does. We sin against God and in his infinite mercy and his infinite wisdom, he saves us. He offers forgiveness for our sin. He offers us hope. He offers us grace, and he becomes the sacrifice. He goes out on this rescue mission. Jesus tells really uh, three stories here, uh, this trilogy of stories in Luke 15. He tells about a woman who loses a coin in her home, about a shepherd that loses one sheep out of his hundred sheep fold, and then a son who runs away from home and rebels against his father. In all three of these, Jesus is describing us being lost and the father going on this rescue mission, God after man's own heart. That's what he's talking about. So when the woman loses the coin, she stops what she's doing. She cleans her house. She looks on every shelf, under the couch, in the cushions, until she finds her coin because it meant so much to her. This one coin had great value, and she initiated this rescue mission for a coin till she found it. This sheep that ran away from the shepherd, he's got 99 more. He'll be fine. He's not going to miss the one sheep, right? Wrong. This one sheep is so important to the shepherd, he leaves the 99 and goes out on a rescue mission until he finds his sheep and brings it home. And in the story of the lost son, when the son runs away from home, he's immature, he's prideful, he says, I can do things my way, I want my inheritance, give me what's mine. He goes, wastes his money, ruins his life, he runs back home with his tail tucked between his legs, and what does the father do? Does he say, you're not welcome here? Does he say, you wanted out? You got what you wanted? Tough. No, the father runs out to meet his son, embraces him, and reestablishes him as his son. That is what Jesus does. He is God after man's heart. In our sin against God, in our rebellion against God, Jesus comes to be born on this earth to live among us as one of us, to take our place on our cross for our sin. Jesus comes after us. He pursues us. It's pretty special. It's pretty amazing that we can celebrate that this time of year, that this rescue mission in Jesus is God coming after our heart, that God saw such value in his creation. He had such love for his creation. Even after they sinned against him, he pursued them anyway, even at great expense to himself. That is what makes Jesus greater. It's not man after God's own heart. It is God after man's heart. So David was great. Despite his imperfection, despite his sin, he was a great leader, a great king, and a man after God's own heart. But Jesus in every way is greater. His sinless life, 
his substitutionary death on the cross, his supernatural resurrection from the dead, and his ceaseless reign as king of kings is greater. I'm so glad this time of year that Jesus is greater in every single way, in every single way that Jesus is indeed greater. Let's pray. God, we do thank you, especially this time of year, for your son, who, as great as David was, Jesus is greater in every way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he uh, is the temple of God. He is with us on earth. We are not as far removed from you as we once were because Jesus bridges that gap. God, thank you that he is the one who pursues us, that you pursue our heart, fallen, sinful, imperfect, broken, frail, human heart. You pursue us through your son, Jesus, on this rescue mission. And as we submit to you as king of our hearts, as we submit to you as king of our lives, you rule and you reign perfectly. You have no lack, you have no need, you commit no sin. Everything you do is pure and perfect and amazing and greater. And so I pray that we would submit our lives to you, give our hearts to you, take the crown off our head and give it to you where it rightly belongs. Thank you, God, for Jesus, that he is greater. And this time of year and all times of year, we celebrate that he is greater. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.